0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Sports, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Paul Nepper, and today I'll be talking to Rich Cohn about his new book, When the Game Was War, The NBA's Greatest Season. Rich is a columnist for the Wall Street Journal. Uh, Prior to that, he wrote for Rolling Stone and is the author of several books, including one about the 1985 Chicago Bears. Rich, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. So as I told you before, I love the book. Um, but l- let me start off with the obvious question, which is what made the 1987-88 season the greatest in NBA history?
2: Well, to some extent, of course. I realize everyone's going to have their own favorite season, and your favorite season's going to be the year that your team won. And there's, there's a little bit of the Lauren Michaels thing. When I interviewed Lauren Michaels, who was the host uh, who created *Saturday Night Live*, I did a story about him for *Rolling Stone*. I asked him what the best ca- what the best cast was, and he says the best the best cast of *Siren Live* was whenever you were in high school. But I still believe, objectively, there's the best cast of *Siren Live*. It's probably the first cast, or maybe the cast with like Will Ferrell. But there's a are bad cast, and I think objectively you could look at '87, '88, and say first of all they had the, you had the most Hall of Famers playing in one season uh, at one time. And it was sort of dead center in the history of the NBA. So those Hall of Famers spanned the entire history of the league at that point. And you had, you know, Kareem was the oldest; he was forty, and he had played with guys when he was a rookie who played before there was an NBA. And uh, and then you had guys, you know, like Reggie Miller, who would keep playing until with guys who are basically just retired in the last couple of years. So you have the whole history of the league, and then you had these incredible rivalries and you had four great dynasties all recognizable as the dynasties that they were all really near the peak at the same time in various states of rise and fall which created this intensity and that was the celtics who were eliminated in the playoffs by uh the pistons and the celtics were still you know two years earlier that team with Larry bird bill walton robert parish uh Kevin McHale, many people think that was the greatest team of all time. You had the Lakers, Showtime Lakers with Magic and Kareem. Many people think that was the greatest team of all time. You had the Bulls who are kind of nascent and -and up-and-coming, but you can see them. You can see the team that I consider the greatest of all time coming into existence. It's the first year Jordan won an MVP. The first year the Bulls won 50 games in a long time. It was the rookie year for Scottie Pippen and Horace Grant who were basically the missing pieces. And Phil Jackson was there, but he was an assistant coach. So they were right there. And then you have the, uh, the Pistons, who are the bad boy Pistons, who I believe really weren't given their due because they were so hated the way they played and because they won back-to-back titles. And they came very close to winning three in a row because the year I write about, they really, if you look at it, they really should have won. I mean, they were kind of robbed by a phantom foul at the end. That's my opinion. You go back and watch yourself. When Bill Laimbeer was called for fouling Kareem at the end of game six, and they would have won the title that year, and there really isn't a foul that you can find. In a way, Bill Laimbeer was paying for a lifetime of bad works. It was karma going back to get him. So to me, and then that created these very intense, almost football-like rivalries. So you said I wrote a book about the 85 Bears. Every Bears fan knows you know, the Bears and the Packers. It doesn't really matter how the season's gone. That's a big game. Uh, and that's going to be a violent, hard-fought game, just like Michigan playing Ohio State in f- college football. And it was like that in that era for the Celtics and the Pistons and for the Bulls and the Pistons and for the Celtics and the Lakers. It was a time of very intense
1: rivalries and a much more physical game than we have today. Um there, there are several fascinating characters in this book. Uh, you know, you just you mentioned a number of them, but you know, I kind of think of it as as the four main characters, the four kind of superstars at at or very close to the height of their powers, uh, being Magic Bird, Michael, and Isaiah. And uh, I found it interesting that you um, really start the book and end the book with. I think most would agree that the least heralded of those four being Isaiah Thomas. And uh, I wonder why you you kind of folk, put that focus on him.
2: Well, part of this whole genesis of this book was I was on a chat with some friends and they were trashing Isaiah because Isaiah became this hated figure in Chicago because of the rivalry. He thwarted Michael Jordan. And Michael Jordan in Chicago became God And when you're the guy who attempts to thwart God, the other name for that character is the devil. And that's what Isaiah Thomas became to a lot of people. And I heard them, and I was defending Isaiah, and their hatred for Isaiah shocked me because my father had been a basketball coach, and we grew up watching a lot of high school basketball. As my father would go around and want us to watch these games, he was following it. It was a golden age when I was a kid in the 70s for high school basketball in Chicago. And I watched, Isaiah was a product of the west side courts of Chicago. He was a Chicago kid, and um, I grew up watching him. He came and played at my high school, and he was just a mesmerizing, once in a lifetime talent. And the fact that he looked like a kid, he always looked like a kid, and he was short, relatively short, or like normal-sized for me. He's like my height. And he competed at this upper level was an inspiration for me as a kid playing sports. And um, and basically, if, and I like looking back at him, I realized he took a team that was bad. He turned them into a dynasty. He built the team for the task they had, which is they had to be very tough and physical to beat the piss, uh, Celtics. And I felt like, really, he, when you look at the Pantheon, I have four guys on the cover, like you said. Normally, those three guys are there, but Isaiah isn't. It's like he's been erased from history, starting with not putting him on the dream team, which, fine, that was a personal animus thing, not a talent thing. And he, uh, I really felt like he had been a disservice, and I wanted to return him to the Pantheon where he belonged. And he played in a real Chicago style, in that he was so tough, that guy. And I went back and watched... Uh, those playoffs there was two different times during the 88 playoffs that Isaiah Thomas was unconscious on the floor you know he played he was a small player who played like a big player and in both times he left the game he came back and delivered the sort of death blow in the game after being knocked unconscious he was a guy who got better after he was hurt and not because he was angry but because somehow it focused him was like some kind of weird Buddhist thing where he became so focused that he became and culminating in game uh, six of the NBA finals where he looked like he broke his ankle, came back and had the single best quarter in the history of the NBA playoffs on one foot. And you go back and watch it. It's unbelievable. I saw I as a kid and I felt like our anger had caused us to lose sight and it was complete hometown stuff. And I know this because the only person on the Pistons who people hated maybe more than Isaiah is Rodman. And they hated Rodman because Rodman was really violent. Isaiah wasn't. Rodman threw uh, Scotty Pippen into the stanchion, if you remember. I mean, I remember at the time I thought he should be arrested. It was like he's trying to kill Scottie Pippen. And the Bulls get him three years later, and he goes from the most hated to the favorite ball. People liked him more than they liked Jordan because he delivered the championship. So it just says to me if Isaiah had played in Chicago... Everyone would feel completely different about Isaiah today.
1: Yeah, it's fascinating, and I think certainly Isaiah's is, uh, kind of the the, the his post career narrative hasn't helped his image. You know, and I, I, I know with me personally, as a huge Knicks fan, I found myself in this awkward situation of I can't stand the guy because I feel I think he did a terrible job as general manager of the Knicks and ran the franchise into the ground, and yet. I'm often defending him because I have the, a lot of the same sentiment as you. I didn't grow up in Chicago. Uh, I, I don't remember him as a high school kid, but I damn sure remember game six of the 1988 finals. I mean, that was one of the greatest, uh, arguably the greatest performance I've ever seen. I mean, it was just remarkable. And that guy was, as you said, tough, but he was, he was just a, a next-level phenomenal basketball player. And I liked how you incorporated in the book how, you know, he, as you said, he, he 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 played to the the team he had, the personnel he had, and the, you know, who he needed to beat. And, you know, you talk about in the book how he he subjugated his game, certainly his scoring, for the benefit of the team. And, you know, I think when you look at the numbers, you know, Isaiah wasn't scoring 25, 30 points a game, but he could have. Right. He absolutely could have. He could have. I mean, he could have been, he could have been like Adrian Dantley, or he could have. He and when he played in college, and
2: that's another thing I remember, which is I was a big Indiana fan, which was, you know, kind of local Chicago area further south, but we considered it sort of in the ecosystem. And um, he led that team as a sophomore. This and they used to hold signs up that said, and a child shall lead them, book of Isaiah, you know, because he looked like he was a little kid. And um, I think a little bit like I wrote this book about the Rolling Stones a bunch of years ago. Not that many years ago. And when the Rolling Stones showed up, the Beatles already existed. So the Rolling Stones, Keith Richards always said, the Beatles were wearing the white hats. We had to wear the black hats. That was the only way we get our identity. That's kind of like what happened to the Pistons, which is the Pistons had no identity. And they, you know, it was after a game against the Bulls where there was this big brawl that year, which I write about, that they, uh, they started calling themselves the Bad Boys, which was a line from a Scarface you know, the movie Scarface. So it was self-tagged, and it was really to give themselves in the rally round, but the real identity as a team, if you look at it, was immensely talented, and the, what you said, Isaiah sublimated his own talent, the idea that they were going to be so balanced that they'd be very hard to beat. So they, if anybody scored more than 20 points, they considered it a failure. And Isaiah as a team leader, so he was a bad general manager, he was a bad coach, but he was a great leader. And as a team leader, the main thing he did was he got those other guys who came to that team to buy into this idea that you're going to have to sacrifice minutes. You're going to have to give up points in in pursuit of the greater good, which is winning a championship. Adrian Dantley didn't really buy into that. He'd been a point leader in the league, and so they traded him. For Mark Aguire, who grew up on the same court as Isaiah, not as good of a player as Dantley, still a Hall of Famer, well, that was the a bill that once he came in, he bought in. Then they they won those two championships, and um, I just think that the other thing that they did was they had kind of they balanced their games. They had if you look at their team, they almost had two starting teams. I think they could have separated into two starting teams and won fifty games each team because the team coming off the bench was arguably better than the team on the floor because coming off the bench, you had Buddha Edwards, Vinny Johnson. Uh, John Sally and Dennis Rodman. And uh, that was really hard for teams like the Celtics who were getting old to deal with because it meant that bird had to play a lot more minutes than he wanted to play. Otherwise they'd run up the score against the second string players. And when the bulls played the Pistons, Michael was young, but he had to play the full game. He played the full game. And by the end, he was just, you know, kind of wiped out. He'd been so beat up and he played so many minutes that in the clutch, the the Pistons would pull away. And we watched it year and year after year after year. And that's also what made it exciting was for the Bulls. It was like, as a Bulls fan, it was like a multi-season project that came to fruition after like five, eight years, I think, before they finally got there. But when they got there, they were like a band who'd been playing in bars for 10 years. They were great.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh- so I want to, I want to get, get into some of the other teams, you know, the, the kind of the four big teams that, that you focus on, and you touched on the Celtics a little bit. What was kind of the state of the Celtics at the time? You mentioned, you know, two years earlier they had perhaps the greatest team of all time, but a lot happened age-wise, injuries-wise in those two years. So where did they stand in 1987-88? Well, they were, to me, they're like five, they're like a quarter past midnight. That's how
2: far they are past their peak. And they're kind of waiting. They're winning on uh, intelligence and determination alone. At that point, they'd beaten the self, the Pistons, a year before, when they really shouldn't have, and they did it with this play, famous play, where the Pistons had uh, basically the, the fourth, the third game won in Boston, and they were would then go home and play for the winning uh, for the seventh for the fourth win in Detroit and Bird sort of tricked Isaiah into throwing it to him at the end of the game, if you remember. Bird took off one way. All Isaiah had to do was inbound the ball, and Bird took off like he was going to play defense and instead cut the other way, and Isaiah threw it right to him. He made this incredible pass to Dennis Johnson, and like in a half a second, the Celtics had won. And that kind of it killed the Pistons for the year. And so the next year they come back, and they're older, they're injured, and they're hurt all year. Bird has the bad back, although he had a great offensive season, I think the best of his career. Kevin McHale had a bad foot. They were all beat up. But the big thing that happened is in the draft the year before, Len Bias had died. If you remember Len Bias, who played at Maryland, played against Jordan in college, was supposed to. And a lot of people said maybe he wasn't as good as Jordan was, but he was up in that league. He was going to be one of the best players in basketball. And Red Auerbach had been scouting him. For like five years and they were all said he got everything worked out that he was going to pass this torch where len bias was going to come in and he was going to play key minutes allowing bird and mikhail to rest and giving him this new energy and slowly he would take over the team as bird phased out and then could play this smaller role so when len bias died first of all it created a great sadness over that team like a it's very hard for a team to recover from that. The Bears had something similar after they won the 63 NFL title game. Their running back died in car crash. And um, so it created this kind of gloom. And then you add to the fact that now the future suddenly disappears basketball-wise, and now Bird and Mikhail, who are getting ready to move into the background a little bit, have to come out and play, take the place of Len Bias was supposed to take. So they were beat up. They were old. And they 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 beat the Knicks in the first round, I think, pretty easily. And then they went and they played Atlanta. And Atlanta's one of those teams that really suggests how good this era was because Atlanta was a team that in any other era would have certainly won the championship a couple times. And they had Dominique Wilkins, one of the best players of all time, and it went to seven games. The Lakers got sick. Like, they all got the flu during it. And then in game seven in Boston Garden, Dominique and Bird had one of the great one on one mono on mono, you know, fast Eddie Felsen and uh Minnesota Fats playing all night. And they and so and the Celtics won that game with Bird, you know, outlasting Dominique. But by the time they got to the next round against Detroit, they were just to spend force. They were exhausted, they were beat up. And the Celtics, you know, the the this, the Celtics actually won. I can't remember exactly two games, or I think they, the Pistons won in six. But those games were just gutted out, and they seem like luck. Some of them that, and but you know that when you look at a team like the Celtics, it seems like luck isn't really luck. I mean, because it happens over and over again. But they were just barely hanging on, and that was really the end of the Boston Celtics. Those Boston Celtics.
1: Yeah. Um. Yeah, the, the, that Vox team—is it you know? Read the books. They're reminded to the Hawks, you know, in the next couple of years, you had like the, the great Cavs team with Price and Darty and Nance, and there were there were some great teams that couldn't even sniff a championship at that time.
2: And the and Milwaukee was really good, and um, and then a few, couple of years later, the Knicks were great, and they kept running into Jordan, you know. So this is this uh, this era of these kind of heavy of these really great teams like one of the things that I have a problem with now a little bit now I mean of all the reason why this era was so special is partly because these teams had each other so like when I was I'm older than you we established so when I was like in my college that was when Mike Tyson had that unbelievable run and if you watch Mike Tyson box you think this guy could have beaten anybody in the history of the world but you didn't really know he never really had a great opponent so you felt like the reason why Muhammad Ali became Muhammad Ali is because he had Joe Frazier and he had um, uh, George Foreman to fight. He had these great guys that caused him to do stuff he wouldn't have done and to figure out things he wouldn't have figured out, like the rope-a-dope, you know. He had to get better. He had to get better. And that's what happened to the Bulls and all these teams. So there was a great quote from Bill Cartwright, who's the center for the Bulls, and they won. He said we should have paid the Pistons a tribute because basically they were like a monster we had to overcome and they made the Bulls the team that won, you know, six championships in eight years was was the Pistons. So that's what was so great. They sharpened each other to a razor edge, all these teams.
0: Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off.
1: The great thing about it too, and you know, I get this question sometimes. And I got it when I talked about my my book, and I'm actually working on a different book now about Moses Malone. But people ask me, you know, what what's better, this era or that era? And I said, look, it's pluses and minuses. You know, there there's good and bad about both. But I I think one of the great things about that era was you had roster continuity then, right? So when you so that when you had the 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 it was. the Pistons and the the Celtics were meeting each other in the playoffs every year, but it was the same teams. Yeah. You know, some guys came and gone, but it was Bird and McHale and Parrish and Lane beer and, and Dumars and Isaiah. And, and, you know, the same with the the Bulls roster and, and the Pistons and, and in the, in the Knicks case in the nineties, it was the Knicks against, you know, Ewing and Sarge and Oakley against Reggie Miller and Dale Davis and Rick Smiths. And, and they had that in the latter part of the decade with the Miami heat. And, so I, I, I always say I think the game misses the rivalries that that existed then. And I think uh, something we were talking about before as well was the physicality, I think it needed to be cut back. It went too far, but there's no doubt that it added to the intensity of the rivalries. Yeah, I mean, I think that the the fact that a free agency, which is great for the players,
2: is, you know, change what it means to be a fan. So basically... There was the thing of watching these people through their career grow up and change as a great sort of role model for life. So Michael Jordan came to the Bulls. I guess I was in high school. And, like, in the middle of high school. And I watched his entire life unfold on the court. You know? And that's not just basketball. That's every sport. And what are you you rooting for? You're basically rooting for these people and watching them as a team develop and grow and figure stuff out. Otherwise, it just becomes a season by season thing and you only really care if your team is has a chance to win the championship and even then you don't quite care in the same way as watching Scotty Pippen go through arriving as this kind of awkward guy and then the migraines and then having to do it on his own and then you know having moments where he kind of like didn't behave right but he overcame I mean that's like a whole human thing and and that you get when you get season after season after season and that's really important because if you're watching a mid-season basketball game where almost every team uh, is going to make the playoffs, so there's not a lot at stake, how do you generate interest? So then now they're doing like mid-season tournament to try to generate some interest. It's really hard to generate interest. So the thing that generates your interest is you know the players and you're rooting for the players every night of the year. And so that's been a – real and that's happened – I mean, I was a I was a big Cubs fan. I wrote a book about the Cubs too. The Cubs, you know, finally won a championship after 108 years or whatever in 2016. And then they let all those guys go. Yeah, All those guys off the team. Guys that when I was a kid, like, it's like we had Ryan Sandberg. You watched him as a rookie. You watched him play his whole career. And you watched him, you know, like one of the great things about Jordan was when he was young, he was all athletic skill. He was Air Jordan. He could hang in the air. He could seemingly go up, go down, and go up all without touching the ground. And um, and then he retired to play baseball or whatever he left. And when he came back, he wasn't physically the same. He was great, but he wasn't physically the same. And he got eliminated when he went to the playoffs, which had not happened in a long time. And he, what he did was he went and he figured out a different way to play basketball, that he could be effective with the skills he had. And what he, he did was basically developed really an outside game, which gave... Players had to back off of him so he could then have the room to go inside. They couldn't cover him the same way. And that was like a great model for anybody getting older. Like basically you realize you lose some skills, but you gain knowledge and you use the knowledge to be actually better with less skills. And that's the thing you only get by sort of watching a player year after year after year. And as far as the physicality goes, I totally agree. I grew up playing basketball in the driveway with my father with my father who at this point was an older guy he'd play me in his business you know wearing his suit with his sleeves rolled up in loafers with change laying in his pockets and his thing was you could go over him and score a layup but if you did you were going to get driven into the garage door and the play would end with you in a heap you know and that was just he grew up uh playing in Coney Island on those courts and that was just the way basketball was played which is one of the reasons he liked the Pistons and liked the way they played and sort of used to have watch it with me so um, the idea about all these sports was you know they're kind of it's the lessons you take outside for the rest of your life and one of the key lessons of every sport is it doesn't hurt as bad as you think it's going to getting hit is not the worst thing in the world and Basically, you can, you got to get up after you've been knocked down. You get up more times than you've been knocked down, you win the game. His role model for me when I was a kid was Jim Brown, who he considered the greatest player in the history of the NFL. And what he loved about Jim Brown is Jim Brown, no matter what happened, he popped up after the play like nothing could hurt him, and it caused the other team to think, this guy's superhuman, he can't be beat. And then he had the game won. So when you remove all that from the game – you lose something. You lose the game as a model for life. The fact is, you have Kevin McHale play a whole season basically on a broken foot. It makes you kind of think you can... Ha- you know, it's just something that you can take the rest of your life. So, I think... And that's not just basketball. All sports, all these sports, if you think about them, are less physical. So, baseball, they remove the hard slide into second. And they remove the collision at home plate. You know? And... um Football, we all know that this quarterback now is basically a secret service detail with him. You're not allowed to touch the quarterback. And uh, and basketball, that whole inside churn was made illegal, the hand checks and everything else, partly because the Pistons found a way to win and sort of clipped the wings of these high-flying teams. And then you add the three-point shot, and then the whole game becomes an outside game, and the rebounding changes. And then you look at it now, and it's hard to recognize as the same sport sometimes.
1: Absolutely, yeah. Um, so you touched on the Bulls a little bit. Where were they in the process at that time? I mean, you know, Scott, so Scotty and, and Horace are very young. Did they? You think they kind of knew that these guys were going to fill out the way that they did and become the players that they did? And and or or uh, what was the state of the Bulls?
2: I think Jerry Krause, who was a general manager, knew. I think Jerry Krause was a genius and he wasn't given credit. The credit he was deserved for the same, he believed for the same reason Isaiah wasn't given credit. Partly Isaiah was small and you know, it's harder. He is the only, if you look at the like athletics top 50 players, I think he's the only one in that list who's under under six feet tall. Jerry Krause always thought it was because he was short and fat. Jordan called him crumbs, right? Which kind of goes with the short and fat. It's kind of, but but Jordan would always get mad at Kraus because Jordan had his own people he wanted the Bulls to pick. And maybe on other teams, they would allow a superstar of that magnitude to be part of that process. Jerry Krause didn't let Jordan be part of the process. Everybody Jordan wanted to pick was some guy coming out of North Carolina. And you can look at their careers. None of them became stars. And look what Jordan did uh, when he was you know running Charlotte. They Nothing he nothing did worked there. So basically, it's like Isaiah's not a good GM and not a good coach. Jordan's not a good GM. And that created a tension, which is Krause spotted these people. And he found them in unexpected places. And I think he looked at Pippen and he knew Pippen was going to be one of the great players of all time based on his physical skills. And Horace Grant, he knew would be a very, very good player, you know, and he made the trade to trade Oakley, who was a favorite fan favorite in Chicago and Jordan's best friend on the team. For Bill Cartwright, which is the missing piece. They needed a center and they knew Horace Graham could play the sort of power forward. So I think that what they were really missing that year was experience and the coach. They had the wrong coach, which is a real young team sometimes needs a more, an older coach, you know, like the Pistons had Chuck Daly, a coach with experience. Duck Collins had been a superstar player. We know that in Illinois because he played college basketball in Illinois, and he was a superstar player in Philadelphia, whose career was cut short by, I think it was a knee injury. Okay, so when he came to the Bulls, he wasn't that much older than the players. He was the Jordan used to say he sweat more than anybody on the team in the course of the game. One of the games this year, he runs during a fight. He runs out onto the court, the coach, and attempts to get Rick Mahorn into a headlock. And it's the over the scorer's table. Not a good idea. So Phil Jackson was there, and he was sort of like, it bucked Collins because he thought Phil Jackson was kind of the prince in waiting. But that was really what the missing piece, not what Phil Jackson gave them. I mean, the triangle and all that. I think they would have won no matter what system they used. It was the sensibility, which is the detachment and uh, his way of recognizing that the whole piston strategy was to do what my dad did to my older brother when they played basketball in the driveway, the great Santini strategy, which is just, we can't beat them physically, so we're going to beat them mentally and get in their head and cause them to go crazy and commit fouls and get ejected and get outside their game. And that was where the Bulls were. They had the talent. It was there. They needed one more player, and they needed basically to do what my father says is the key to life, which is to care, but not that much. They needed to let it go, you know? So uh, and that, that came the next season and they instantly went from, you know, they so- suddenly were playing the Pistons, pushing them to the brink. So when I was a kid, which happens sometimes in sports, the best game, the sort of real championship, it seemed like was the Bulls and the Pistons. You know, once the Bulls got past the Pistons, they were gonna win the championship. The Pistons were the best team. And that was, that was those were the two best teams happened to be in the same side of the league.
1: You you talked about Phil and and uh, you know how, how the Bulls didn't have the right coach and it it, it kind of struck me that the coaches back then were more iconic, maybe more powerful in a way. You know, you think of uh, and Morris, maybe more associated with the winning. I mean, it, like you know, you think of Magic and and Riley and Riley's imprint on that on the on the Showtime Lakers, and of course Phil's imprint on the Bulls and those guys are so associated with a team's success. And then uh, perhaps it's due to more player movement or whatever it is, but I, I, LeBron is the guy that comes to mind. He's won four championships with three different coaches. And, uh, I mean, I guess you have like Kerr with Curry and, and, the, and Golden State, and you did a pop in, in San Antonio, but it it seems like maybe there's less of an emphasis on the coaches from a, a public standpoint. Um Well, think about it this way. I mean, I haven't thought a lot about it, but the balance of power in the league
2: has changed. So the superstar players kind of hold all the cards and it limits what the coaches can do. So for example, like I wrote a story about Mike Ditka when he was a coach. Mike Ditka could not coach once there were no cut contracts, once the stars became bigger than the coaches because he was like a hard-ass coach, what Doug Plain called a chemo coach, and he needed the threat of not playing guys. And he had a play, guys. And when he had a play, guys, he lost his ability to discipline the team and make them buy into his program. So basically, the stars that hold most of the cards, you know, where they're going to go, what they're going to do. And that limits the role of the coach. And um, so basically that ultimately you have to pay the coaches so much, otherwise the players won't even respect them at all. And then you have a new generation of owners who are much more comfortable being in the public eye. And being involved with the players, you know, so it kind of leaves no role for the coach, which is kind of, I mean, you think about what sports the coach is the most important basketball and football, I would say, a bas- a basketball, a coach can make a huge, huge difference, you know, in, in, and in, in strategy and how the team plays. And one of the things that was so great about the Pistons was the way that they were coached, which is they had a strategy for every team that they played. And they had a way to make older teams like the Celtics run. And then to take a game against like the Lakers who love to run and slow it way, way down, you know. And you might have a hard time getting players who don't like to play slow and don't like to score 10 points do that. And, you know, in in Detroit, uh, Chuck Daly was lucky in that Isaiah bought into that and also got with it and helped him get these guys to buy into doing that. But I think now with the players having so much of the power, which is probably just and right, it just makes it much harder for the coach to sort of say, okay, we're not going to run and we're not going to score 110 points. This game should end. We should score 90 points and they should score 80 points. That's the goal for tonight. I think they just have a harder time imposing that strategy. Yeah.
1: Um so the Lakers of course in 87 88 were the the defending champions and as you document in the book Pat Riley famously declared that they were going to repeat um which put a great deal of pressure on everybody um how did how did that team compare to say the 85 Lakers that won the championship you know uh, as you noted Kareem was 40 at that point what was what was Kareem's role at that point and how did that how did that version of the Lakers compare to earlier versions well You know, Kareem definitely couldn't run in the same way. And if you remember the movie
2: Airplane, they make the joke where the kid says, my dad says you don't hustle or only hustle in the playoffs. But there was truth to it. So when you go back and watch some of those games, Kareem doesn't go back on defense. By the time the game, he just sort of stays in the middle of the court because it's too much for he can't keep up. But what was amazing was like Kareem's another one of the, because he was old. And he played so much basketball, but he was another one of those guys who figured out how to sort of husband his resources and show up when he was needed and do it then. So in several games in the key moment, Kareem sort of who seems like he's ineffective, he's too old, he can't keep up, suddenly emerges and wins the game, you know, with a key block at the key moment or a key little run where he scores seven points in a row down the stretch, you know. So, um, I think that they definitely physically were older and they couldn't run the way they could and they were right behind the Celtics in a way as far as getting old. But they were still there and Kareem was still able to contribute. And as good as they were with Vlade Divac who replaced Kareem, they were never the same. And Kareem does not... I would say when you go back and make the list of the best players of all time, if you talk to the basketball people, the old ones, they say Kareem was the best player of all time. I mean... And whatever, because he was a center and the game went away from the center and the game has changed and people don't understand what a center like him did back then. Um, he also doesn't get as much credit, as hard as it is to believe, as he deserves. So the the Celtics were... The Lakers were getting older, but they were still had James Worthy, who was so incredibly fast, Byron Scott. I mean, they still had this great, great, great team. Um, but, you know... It's what's so interesting about sports in that era is the teams are like dynasties and they sort of rise and fall like dynasties from medieval history from the 30 years war, you know, so you can sort of see what's interesting was that year you look at it and you say the best team in the league was the Pistons, but the Pistons didn't win the championship. The Lakers won the championship um, because the Pistons hadn't learned yet how you can't let some of these games be close close enough for the refs to decide them. You know, if you're complaining about the refs costing you the game, which they do, the game is too close. You got to like finish them off. It's a question of learning how to finish teams off, and the, the Celtics really knew uh, the Lakers knew how to do that, and the and the Pistons didn't.
1: And so, kind of circling back to you know earlier in our conversation, Isaiah Thomas in Game Six. um, you talk a little bit about that, what, what happened there, what, what that performance was like? Well,
2: they went They won, They all, they won. all went back to L.A. needing to – they played in Boston in the Silver Dome. I mean, in Detroit in the Silver Dome, which is crazy. And they went back to the forum to L.A., and they only needed to win one of two. And in such a situation, they're being told, you want to win in game six. Because in game seven at the Lakers at home, and, and the fact that the Lakers know how to finish teams off, and they've done it many times before – Uh, you want to finish in game six. And um, the game was very close, and and the Pistons were right there, and Isaiah rolled his ankle. And, you know, he went down like a ton of bricks, and he was screaming on the floor, and he'd be helped off the floor. He couldn't really walk off on his own. And it really looked like he was done for the night, and with it, so was the Pistons for that night. And Isaiah... It's like he realized that he had like about an hour. About an hour until his ankle became swollen and he couldn't walk. Couldn't fit his shoe on anymore. And he decided that their best chance to win the championship was right then. And he went out on the floor and he just tried to take that team on his shoulders and a thing he didn't normally do. He saw that he could do it because he thought this was the chance and he was the leader and he had to do it. And he had this unbelievable third and very good fourth quarter where he scored, it seemed like everything he shot, and he basically won that game, except it came down to the very end where Lambeer got called for that foul that didn't happen. So it was this, it's kinda like The Old Man and the Sea, like the Hemingway book, in that it almost becomes more dramatic and more memorable because he has this great performance, he does everything he's hurt, and they lose anyway. Yeah. Because that's what life is like, man. Sometimes when you're, even though you're better, even though you did everything you're supposed to do, you still lose, you know, and, um, and then by game seven, Isaiah couldn't play. He went out on the floor a couple times, but he's, he couldn't, really couldn't run. He was a detriment to the team. He hardly played. And, um, but what that did is that caused them to come back the next season and blow through the season and win the championship. And then the season after that until basically the Bulls rose up to dethrone him. So, you know, to me, I was like you. I was, I was watching on TV with my father, and my father's telling me he's done for the night. He's not coming back. I've seen injuries like that. And then he comes back and does this unbelievable thing, which is the whole reason why we watch sports. Yeah. And for that, that night alone, I'm like yelling at my friends. I'm like, I am grateful for Isaiah, because Isaiah gave me one of the best spectacles of sports I've ever experienced.
1: I couldn't agree more, and I encourage anyone who hasn't seen it go go watch it on YouTube wherever you can find that game because it. I mean, the guy he couldn't even walk. Never mind run. He couldn't walk, and he's shooting shots where he's 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 shooting off the dribble that it, like off the wrong foot because he can't balance on his foot, or he's he went up for a couple shots and landed a, back down on one foot. It's it. I mean it's it's remarkable. It's it's just a. It, Beyond transcend sports, just as you alluded to, just the the you know the the, the human the human ability to to achieve at a, at a possible level, and also at that moment, I mean, it probably wasn't good for his long term
2: longevity. He probably injured his ankle a lot worse, and his career was shortened by injury. And um, and but at that moment, that in that era too, I mean, really, guys, he felt like they put the moment over the long term. And he didn't care about his long-term prospects. He just wanted to win that game that night, and that's
1: what you felt about him. It's like that moment was his entire career. Yeah, that's yeah. Um, I wonder that in the course of researching this book, I know how much research goes into it. Was there a player or a team or a moment that kind of surprised you, or or you know, changed changed your mind about a certain player or or, or a team or, or something? You know, something you didn't expect going in that through the course of research, re. Well, actually, a a whole bunch of things. I could name,
2: but I'm just say a couple. One is, I remember watching Bill Lambier and hating Bill Lambier and everything. But when you go back and look at Bill Lambier now, because I was too young to notice this, he is like a premonition of how players play today. Because Bill Lambier, the center would usually get in the post. And the ball was worked from the inside out, the the point guard would pass into the center who would Bill Lambeer lined up at the top of the key and played outside. He was a great outside shooter. And doing that, he also drew the other team's big player away from the basket. So that was really interesting. You, to Just to see, like, here's this guy playing. He's almost ahead of his time in the way he played. And his ability as an outside shooter. That's one. Another is what these guys are doing now. You know? So... We all know what Isaiah's doing. You knew what you know, all Magic's doing. Bird's kind of around. Adrian Dantley, who is a is a Hall of Famer and a great, great play, great player, is working as a crossing guard at a at like a middle school in Maryland. And not because he needs the money; he's rich. He just likes. T- he's a weird guy. It's what he likes to do. You know, he enjoys whatever, whatever. So it's super interesting, like the way, like when you're. I always think a uh, a guy, at, somebody at that level of superstardom, sports or whatever. They athletes, I would say they sort of pro-athletes die twice because they die the real death, but then when their career ends, it's like a death. And a lot of them can't figure out how to get back into life or live a normal life. Robert Parrish is an example of that. He had a lot of trouble, you know. Um, but Adrian Dantley found this kind of beautiful way, like the way of the pilgrim, to, you know, sort of sink himself into the everyday. And then I'll say one more thing, which is as a, as some a sports parent, and as a kid who played sports as a kid, you know that the things that are the most important for an athlete, for a team, are often not measured. There's no statistic for them. And because of that, the thing becomes invisible and undervalued, and only great coaches can see it. And one is, there are certain players that you'll notice everywhere they go, that team wins. And it has to do with their effect on everybody else. They're like a very... And a guy, there was a guy like that on the Celtics named Jerry Seasting, who um, they lost. They never won again without him. He, they didn't win until he showed up. And and he and everybody said that not only did Len Bias die, but Jerry Seasting was traded, and he was the guy that everybody loved, that made everybody want to stay an extra hour of practice to hang out with him because he was so fun to hang out with, you know. And, and there's no stat for that. Like the guy who keeps the locker room loose and the guy who makes everybody want to go out together, and we trade that guy away because he's getting five less points a game or whatever, what happens to the rest of the team? So that really made me think about the importance of those players that we don't notice because their effect is internally and culturally on the team.
1: That's interesting. It actually reminds me of an Isaiah line, which is that championships are won on the bus, which I I always really like that line. Um, Yeah. So as someone, you know, obviously you love that era of basketball and – Enough to you were compelled to write about it. How do you feel about the game today? I well, I enjoy it, but I don't feel. First of all, I'm older.
2: There's nothing like sports when you're 18, 19 years old. But like you said, the 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 you can't. The players don't stick with the teams; they move around. It's hard for me. You know, they might people say LeBron James's career is as good as Michael Jordan. The fact that he won on three different teams to me, is not as interesting as a guy who's, who's on the one team and w- figures out how to win with that one team. There's something about a team with a core that stays together. Doesn't happen anymore, so that's harder for me to watch. I like when guys figure out how to play together with what they have than go out and bring in the big superstar. I never liked the way the Yankees put teams together. I like the way the Cincinnati Reds put their team together. They built it from the bottom up. You know, I like the way the Yankees built their team in the '90s when they did it a different way because Buck Showalter set it up instead of George Steinbrenner. You know, so um, so I miss that, and I like the inside game, which is gone because not only are the rules don't allow it, but three points, three pointers are so prevalent that you know when you miss a three pointer, the rebound is a different kind of rebound. So players have to play in a different spot on the floor. So and so I, and and I find now the game that I really have liked in the past to watch more than the pro teams. And the Bulls haven't been good in a while. That's part of it. But is uh, college basketball? College basketball holds my attention in the way pro basketball doesn't work because I know each game seems so important to those players. The game, every game, really matters. Where sometimes, like I, I'm, same with hockey. I went to a Rangers game a couple years ago. And I was like cuz I live far away from New York now and it was like an exhibition game. The players just there's no intensity yeah. to it. No one was willing to get hurt. No one was ready to sort of, you know, deliver a big hit cuz nobody wanted to get hurt. It's like watching preseason football. So, uh and I my my one fear is that the rules about football the way they're changing and it, it's just going to turn it into another pro league. You know, and that you have guys that can just jump from team to team to team. You don't know what team of guy's going to be with you so anyway i still love watching basketball but of all the sports now the sport i think is at the its golden moment right now is the nhl really the nhl has so much young talent 17 18 years old that's different these little guys who are incredibly skilled that can make plays you can't believe like hand-eye coordination and their speed and everything so um And I do believe that, you know, sports is defined by the players who come into it. And often you get like a bunch of great players at the same time. And that's the great era for a sport. And it'll happen with basketball. I don't, I don't feel like it's happening right now in the exact way, but I feel like it is happening in hockey.
1: Interesting. Um, all right, Rich, I will get you out of here. One last question that i like to ask all my guests, um, But first, once again, Rich's book is called When the Game Was War, The NBA's Greatest Season. Um, My final question for you, Rich, is what is your all-time favorite sports book? That's
2: tough. First of all, my my definition of a sports book is broad. So, like, well, like, in a way, the Hemingway book, The Sun Also Rises, is kind of a sports book because he writes so vividly about bullfighting, you know, Um, I would say I really like, of course, The Boys of Summer, the Roger Kahn book. Uh, There's a bunch of really good ones that I like a lot. It's hard to think of. Um, I really like North Dallas 40. You ever read that book? I mean, it's a novel, but it's basically based on the Dallas Cowboys. Uh, That's a great, great sports book and uh, about the NFL in the 70s. Um, I like all the Roger Angel stuff a lot more and more the older I get. Um, trying to think for—I mean, do you have a single favorite sports book?
1: It's hard. Kind of my 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 go-to as as a basketball guy is uh, "Heaven Is a Playground" by Rick Talent. Yeah, that's a great I, book. that book. With that on. um, but yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I could rattle off you know twenty of them right now that that I absolutely love. It's hard to pick one. I mean, as far as basketball,
2: um, the David Halberstam book, "The Breaks yeah. of the Game," I guess. And his book about the, uh, you know, this the season, the Bill Walton wins championship with Portland. And you have to almost go sport by sport. It's interesting because some sports, like boxing, has a lot of the greatest writing. But we don't that much boxing anymore, you know. But it was just something that was really good for people to write about because it's such a primal metaphor for the human condition, you know. Two guys... in a a ring fighting for their life, and when things are actually violent and the stakes are high because of the violence, then it it gives you more to write about because it's closer to what it feels like to be alive and struggling. So, you know, the sports that maybe, and like a sport like hockey, there's been some great books but not that many because there's just not as big of an audience for it in in the United States. It
1: might change, you know, but. I mean, Ken uh, Ken Dryden's book is a classic. Yeah, what's it called? Yeah, I
2: Ken Dryden's like of all the guys who played
1: at a very high
2: level because I was a big Ken Dryden fan when I was a kid and a big Canadians fan. Um, he's like the best writer, yeah. I think. And Kareem, you know, so don't, Kareem, when you t- yeah, he's an excellent writer. Yeah, but yeah, but Kareem, he's an excellent writer on everything. Ken Dryden writes about what it's like to be a young goalie having to go to the Soviet Union to play when it was so scary. When the Soviet Union is like going to the Death Star to play against, you know, Darth Vader's hockey team. You know? (laughs) The stakes seemed so high. It seemed like if the Russians lost, we might get nuked. You know? So, um, anyway, it's it's good. It's good. I just, I'm always looking for new great sports books too. So, uh, you know, if you come across anything. I also, there's so many though. I read that, recently read the book about Ted Williams, the uh, the uh, Richard Ben Craver yeah, book, yeah, I think. Yeah. Really good book.
1: I just like books when they get off the court a little bit and into the culture of the team. Yeah. There was a great book I read recently, uh, Across the River by Kent Babb, uh, about a, a high school yeah, really? high school football team in Louisiana. Just fantastic writer. Yeah. He's, he's a great writer. He wrote a great uh, Allen Iverson biography, too. I read the I liked Friday Night Lights a yeah. lot. Now that I think about
2: it, sort of forgot about it. But that's books almost about the town in yeah. Texas. As
1: yeah, much well, as the, you know, like you said, I mean, the best sports books are about a lot more than sports.
2: Yeah, and I, I remember when I was a kid reading the David Halberstam book about the pennant race with the St. Louis Cardinals, and that always really stuck in my head too. It's good. I'm always in the always in the market for it, but. You know, if you look at the Hemingway stuff about how he writes, because he has a, a description of a shoeless Joe Jackson hitting a home run, and as far as writing about a physical action very simply that creates an image in your head, that's as good as anything I've ever read about It's It really is. And he's writing about fishing and all that, and I just read the John McPhee book about the founding fish about shad yeah. fishing,
1: and that's a great book. Really? You know. Well, he's excellent. So they're out. He could write about, I don't flies, and it would be excellent. Well, he has a book about Bill Bradley. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I would so sense great. of where you are. And Bill Bradley wrote a great book, "Life on the Run," about like it's it's basically a journal from his towards the end of his playing career. It's excellent. Yeah, yeah. I, I there's there's when you start thinking
2: about it, because I read a gazillions of books about this season and read all the articles again, and a lot of the best writing about basketball happened or happened in the newspaper, you know, because um, they went back and read, you know, what people, people forget the sports was so much more literary than or written about. I mean, every team, every one of those cities had two reporters traveling with the team. One guy who did the day by day news and another person who stepped back and gave you the bigger picture. And then when the playoffs, you may had three or f- the other guys come in and
1: give their sort of take. And the the natives, I mean, even, you know, like you look at like the Boston Globe, not just basketball, the whole sports department at that time in the 1980s. I mean, like it's it's incredible who they had on their roster. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I I think when I was a kid and started getting interested in writing, like one of the first books I read was Red
2: Smith's collected sports articles from The New York Times. You know, it was still you had a sense like if you were, you know uh baseball player coming up, you'd want to watch a lot of Ted Williams to see how he hit the ball. If you wanted to be a writer, you want to read a lot of Red Smith and Roger Angel. You know? So I don't know if young people still feel that exactly that way. But you know, you go but what's cool about Roger Kahn's book was he wrote about his own life in Brooklyn too. And that's kind of how I write too. Like he his life because as a fan when you're a kid, your life and the life of the team are completely intertwined. You know, so
1: it's, 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 yeah, it's an interesting phenomenon, right? I mean, people have asked me about my Knicks book. I wrote about the Knicks in the 90s and I, you know, why that's meant so much to me, blah, blah. And I was like, well, you know, I was the four years that Pat Riley was the coach of the Knicks exactly coincided with the four years I was in high school. And the Knicks were the most important thing in the world to me. Number 1. Nothing close, you know, and my wife and my kid and my job is it was it was just the Knicks, And I watched every game and it was all I thought about. And then even the next 4 years at Arcadia, I was in college and similarly like, you know, it was it was just there there's a a youthful exuberance and uh, kind of naivety too uh, about the whole thing that you just uh throw yourself into it in a way that you you know, are, are wise enough, frankly, not to when you're older and, and don't have the time or the energy to do either. Well, often as a, I, I don't think it's just a Chicago thing, but
2: there's a moment where you're broken as a fan and you never quite care exactly the same. For me, when I was in high school, like a freshman or maybe a sophomore, the, cu- the 84 Cubs, I was convinced were maybe the greatest team in the history of baseball they had the all animal infield you know and um and I remember arguing with my father about who was a better center fielder Joe DiMaggio or Bob <laughs>
1: and
2: the Cubs won the first two games of the, of the first round of the playoffs they blew out I was at one of those games I missed school and um and then they went to San Diego They only won one out of three and they lost three games in a row all games that they had the lead in and then at the end, the team actually fell apart and started bickering with each other. You could see him bickering. And um, after the last game, I went outside in front of my house and sat down and wept. You know? And I would say I came in, cleaned myself up, came back inside. I was a different person. I would ne- ne- never let myself get that vulnerable again. And though finally the, the year after that the Bears won the Super Bowl and they wanted to this they won the they blew through the season in this incredibly violent way as it was like the Quentin Tarantino Revenge fantasy for Cubs fans like the the Bears were not only going to beat you they were going to knock out your quarterbacks and then But the Bears fell apart and the Bulls were the only team there was a dynasty the only Chicago Dynasty until so the Blackhawks more recently uh since the early 1900s, when the Cubs had a dynasty, you know, so the Cubs had like one 1906, 1907, 1908, something like that. We had to wait you know, almost 100 years into the 90s for the Bulls to be something like a Chicago dynasty and change the image of Chicago sports from, you know, like, would have been like Detroit, yeah, like the perennial loser, like what's wrong with Chicago and da-da-da, to this kind of place where... Bulls fans expected to win and if the Bulls didn't get into the third round of the playoffs or something people were pissed. They yeah. wanted the coach fired. Yeah. So what I'm saying is the kids today they're just spoiled. <laughs> they
1: don't, they don't know what pain is. All right. Well, on that note, Rich. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I, I told you, I love the book. Uh, it brought back a lot of memories for me, and I learned a lot of new things that I didn't know. And, uh, and it, was, it was great talking to you about it. You too. Good luck. Thank with you for Pulling
2: up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me.